Last time we spoke in length about the day that will live in infamy, the attack on Pearl Harbor. And while this was a monumentous moment for the beginning of the Pacific War, it was also done simultaneously with the invasion of Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Now we are going to get right into the thick of it with the invasion of Thailand and Malaya. For the next few weeks, we will be juggling multiple territories seeing the onslaught of the Japanese Empire. To be very honest, the first weeks of the Pacific War in 1941 are something like a supernova going off. The Japanese simultaneously lash out in multiple directions and it can be quite jarring. But rest assured, your friendly narrator will do his best to wrangle in this story, stating that this episode will be on the invasion of Malaya. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I am your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we start, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn more about the history of the Second World War? I recommend their episodes on the Battle of Kursk or the Winter War. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and to continue helping us produce this content, please check out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And after all that, if you are still hungry for some more history-related content, why don't you go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over on YouTube. Over there you can find videos like Nagumo's Dilemma during the Battle of Midway, or perhaps a historic film review, like the one I did on The Last Samurai. Go give it a look, it would mean a lot to me. So right after World War I, Britain formed what is loosely called the Singapore Strategy. Its aim was to deter aggression from the Empire of Japan by building up a naval base for the Royal Fleet in the Far East. It would then be able to intercept and defeat the Japanese force heading south towards places like India or Australia. But for this to all be possible, Singapore would need to be made into a colossal fort that would be able to withstand the onslaught of the Japanese Empire. The British envisioned an outbreak of war with Japan to go through three phases. Number one, a garrison at Singapore would defend the fortress. Number two, the Royal Navy would make its way from the home waters to Singapore. And number three, the fleet would relieve any captured regions, most likely Hong Kong, and would blockade the Japanese home islands. Being an island nation herself, Britain knew how effective a naval blockade could be and thought the economic fallback from such an action would bring Japan to her knees. So from 1919 all the way up to 1941, Singapore and Malaya would undergo some fortification. Alongside this came a lot of international treaties established to make sure Britain would always be able to maintain its eastern empire such as the Washington Naval Treaty, followed by the London Naval Treaty. Both these treaties were Britain and the United States' method of limiting the naval powers of an empire like Japan. By setting restrictions on how many of each type of warship the nations could construct, it would ensure the nations with the best productivity, i.e. America or Britain, could fight a war and replace their warships much quicker than a nation like Japan. 
Thus, try to imagine a nation like Japan starts a war with Britain. Both have an equal sized fleet. They fight some early naval battles and lose half their fleets. It would take Japan probably four years to replace their losses, while a nation like Britain might pull it off in about a year. This was to be a cornerstone in the defense of Britain's holdings in the East. Another more tragic treaty change during this time was the loss of the Anglo-Japanese Alliance Treaty, which had been around since 1902 and renewed periodically. Britain saw the tension between the United States and Japan and feared getting caught up in the middle. Yet, Australia and New Zealand both favored renewing the treaty as, well, hell, they were really close to Japan and knew it was in their best interest, while a nation like Canada favored not renewing the treaty and remaining closer to the United States. So Britain ended up not renewing the treaty in 1921 and pretty much set a course to throw its lot in with the United States when it came to holdings in the Pacific. To say Japan was not happy about this is a understatement. Japan was already alienated as it was, and this just furthered that feeling. So like I said before, Britain looked at the Singapore strategy in three phases with the most emphasis being placed on phase number one, that being the fortification of Singapore. The construction of the base went slowly during the 1920s, but when Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931, Britain truly ramped up that program. The base covered 21 square miles and had the largest dry dock in the entire world, the second largest floating dock, and enough fuel tanks to support the entire Royal Navy for over six months. It took inspiration from France's formidable Maginot Line, the defensive line along France's frontier with Germany. The walls were three feet thick, of concrete in some places making it more of a large bunker that could withstand direct hits from both heavy aerial bombs and shells. The most visible manifestation of Singapore's defenses were the heavy guns. In May of 1935, to mark the Silver Jubilee of King George V, the Sultan of Johor donated half a million pounds towards the costs of installing five 15-inch naval guns. The Sydney Morning Herald said of this, quote, There are more guns on Singapore Island than plums in a Christmas pudding. Singapore is the Gibraltar of the East. End of quote. Singapore had 29 garrison artillery pieces, five 5 inch naval guns, as we said, alongside six 9.2 inch caliber and 18 6 inch guns. Now, for those 15-inch monster guns, all but two of them could swivel fully, that being 260 degrees, which was very important as they were designed to hit warships. So I'm going to take a chance here to just acknowledge something a few of you more hardcore history buffs might be wondering about, that being the Singapore 15-inch guns pointing the wrong way during this war. Basically, a myth evolved from the idea that the 15-inch guns were pointed in the wrong direction when some future battles are going to occur that we'll talk about later. The idea was that the Japanese simply went around and the guns were never a real threat to them. The truth is, the guns did move and they shot the Japanese invaders, 
but the munition on hand was mostly armor-piercing rounds designed for hitting ships, and not for hitting invaders who were on the land. So it was not very effective, to say the least. Try to picture in your mind, when you shoot a armor-piercing round into, let's say, a sandbank, it's going to embed itself in the sand quite deeply and then explode. Well, that's not going to hit many men who are running about on the beach. Now, a heavy explosive shell might connect right with the sandbank and explode immediately, sending parts of that shell everywhere, just tearing people apart. That's what would have been more effective. But this was not the case during a specific battle in the future. Anyways, there is a bit more to this myth, but we will get to it another time. Alright, so phase one, building a mighty fortress to hold off the Japanese onslaught, was established. Phase two now, how long could such a fortress hold out? The British estimated it would take the home fleet perhaps up to 180 days to assemble and reach Singapore, and this is not taking into consideration that Britain might be at war with Oh, I don't know, Germany and Italy. Another more noticeable problem with the defense of Singapore was that most of it was dedicated to the idea the Imperial Japanese Navy would perform a sea invasion from the south. Indeed, the overall defenses of Singapore was against sea threats. All of these large caliber guns were there for hitting ships. In November of 1935, Singapore and Malaya received a new army commander, Major General Sir William George Shendon Doby. What a very long name. Well, Mr. Doby was tasked amongst other things with the defense of Singapore, and thus he did a lot of wargaming and analyzed the state of the Gibraltar of the East. What concerned him was the poor performance of the anti-aircraft defenses and that of all things to occur during the war exercises, it was a northern landing party from the HMS Norfolk that was able to do serious damage. Toby raised concerns about the possibility of an enemy like the Japanese to simply bypass the sea defenses entirely and invade through Thailand or possibly northern Malaya. Doby furthered all of this by performing exercises to showcase how southern Malaya's jungles were not impassable as many had thought at the time, and that attacks from there would have the enemy right at the doorstep in no time at all. How very foreshadowing. Now Sir Winston Churchill believed the Japanese would attack the British holdings in the Far East, but he did not think this would occur until at least 1941. With the war in Europe raging, Churchill chose to reinforce the Mediterranean instead of the Far East. By the way, when I say Far East, I am talking about places like Malaya, Burma, Borneo, and Hong Kong. The strategy would stay the same. Britain would do all it could to delay the Japanese attack and eventually hold up in Singapore until the cavalry arrived, that being the Royal Navy. Malaya would receive two more important commanders. In November of 1940, Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Brooke Popham was sent as Commander-in-Chief of all land and air forces in Malaya, Burma, Hong Kong, and Borneo. This would be the first time an RAF officer had been given overall command of thousands of soldiers. Brooke Popham was 62 years old, tall, slim, quite charming, 
and had a long career as a soldier, pioneer airman, and a senior colonial civil servant. He had seen some action in South Africa fighting the same Boer horsemen that Churchill faced once upon a time. He was also one of the men responsible for creating the RAF back in World War I, quite an interesting figure, albeit a very 19th century minded one. His appointment also reflected the growing conviction that if the Japanese attacked Malaya, it would be aircraft that would keep the invaders at bay by sinking their ships with torpedoes and bombs. Now back when Dobie was appointed in 1936, he acquired a useful and like-minded subordinate named Colonel Arthur Percival. Percival was a tall, gangling man of 48 fit with the most British qualities of the very day. A toothbrush mustache, buck teeth, and a slightly receding chin. Indeed, the cartoonists of the day had no mercy when it came to Percival. Google any of these cartoons. It is worthwhile and hilarious. Percival was a gallant soldier. He received two distinguished service orders, a military cross earned at the Battle of the Somme, where he was badly wounded, and a croix de guerre for leading a tired battalion counterattack against the Ludendorff Offensive of 1918, saving a French artillery unit and three mentions in dispatches for his coolness under fire. He also saw quite a lot of action in the Russian Civil War intervention and would receive the Order of the British Empire for his service as a battalion intelligence officer in Ireland during the troubles of the 1920s against the IRA. The IRA, by the way, placed a 1,000 pound price on his head. Now, when the China War was heating up in 1937, Percival took a keen notice. In the book Singapore Burning by Colin Smith, I highly recommend this one by the way, he states that Percival in 1937, quote, was nearing the end of his tour, had begun to notice how good some Japanese equipment was. He was particularly impressed by the shallow draft landing craft and the ship they had developed to carry the landing craft, enabling them to outflank their enemy and make amphibious landings along the China coast. Percival wrote a summary of the tactics the Japanese were likely to use in any attack on Singapore, which assumed that a British task force sailing to rescue would take more than the expected 70 or so days to get there. It emphasized the greater need for the defense of the back door, as Percival called Northern Malaya's border with Thailand. Most of all, it demanded more infantry and aircraft to counter Japan's landings along the coast. The senior naval officer in the colony did not share Percival's conclusions. One said, I rather feel that the civilian members of the defense committee may regard the whole as too pessimistic and take the line that we are scaremongers. End of quote. So as you can see, Percival did some homework on the Japanese, and he would prove to be quite the minority in that. A lot of the Western military leadership overlooked the capabilities of Japan, and this would hold very dire consequences. When the attack came, Percival would be in charge of 31 inexperienced infantry battalions, 
untrained to fight in jungles or rubber plantations. They were organized into three divisions, the 9th and 11th Indian Divisions and the 8th Australian Division. The Malayan garrisons totaled 88,600 men. For air power, which was the key to the defense of Malaysia, the British had 14 squadrons of mostly old aircraft. They had two Vicar Wildebeest squadrons, biplane light bombers, and torpedo bombers made back in 1928. They also had four Brewster Buffalo squadrons, a rather slow-moving and obsolete fighter for the day, certainly not capable of facing the more famous Japanese Zero fighter, which could run circles around them. There was also four Bristol Blemheim light bomber squadrons, a more offensive aircraft than defensive, something to hit incoming warships for example. Then there was some ferry albacore biplanes that came into service in 1936. They were the replacements for the old ferry swordfish biplane torpedo bombers. Lastly, they had some reconnaissance Catalina PBYs. A real ragtag team of old, mostly obsolete planes. You might be thinking to yourself, what is going on here? Where are those, you know, those famous Spitfires and those hurricanes? Well, they're in Britain, defending the home nation for its very life. Oh, and it's not just the outdated planes that are in the Far East. The pilots also lacked adequate training and experience. And of the experience that they had, it was against something like the Luftwaffe or the Italian fighters. They were going to be facing the acrobatics of the Japanese Air Force using Nakajima Oscars and Zero Fighters. To say the cards were stacked is an understatement. Ironically, most in Britain assumed their adequated air forces in the East would be able to hold off the Japanese despite the technological edge because of their superiority as pilots. Just before the hostilities would break out, Commander Genda of the IGN Air Force, that guy who helped plan Pearl Harbor, well, he was at Japan's London Embassy and made a rather interesting report back to Tokyo after witnessing the Battle of Britain. In his report, it read, While the RAF was bad, the Luftwaffe was even worse. End of quote. The Japanese had years of aerial combat under their belt in China that was completely disregarded by most of the Western leaders. The Japanese believed they held the upper hand when it came to air superiority. Well, this one is an argument for sure as to who was performing better, but one thing that is not an argument is the aircraft on hand would most definitely favor the Japanese. The British naval forces were worse than their aircraft. They had three pre-World War I cruisers and some gunboats. For the poor chaps in Hong Kong, the situation was even more dire. Because of the war in China, the Japanese had surrounded Hong Kong to stop it from leaking supplies to Chiang Kai-shek's forces. Major General Christopher Maltby was in charge of the defenses of Hong Kong and he believed he could delay the Japanese long enough for the British to rescue them by bringing reinforcements. The truth was, none were available. 
In Hong Kong, there were six infantry battalions, almost 15,000 troops made up of the British, Indian, Canadian, and Chinese forces. They would defend a series of defensive lines such as the Jin Drinkers Line, which stretched across the Kowloon Peninsula. It was intended to stop the Japanese advance from the mainland. The line was estimated to be able to hold out for around three weeks, but if the line was broken, the defenders would hunker down on the island of Hong Kong for as long as possible. Now back to the situation of Singapore. On November the 11th of 1940, a German raider in the Pacific, known as the Atlantis, captured a British steamer named the Automedon in the Indian Ocean. The Germans had found top-secret British government documents aboard, which were so secret there had been orders given that if the ship was captured, the captain was to throw the documents overboard, but he had failed to do so. Well, one of these documents was the meeting minutes of the British War Cabinet that was about the strategic assessment of the Far East. The document outlined the defense of Malaya, Singapore, and included a complete order of battle for air, land, and sea forces. Big oops. The document further explained that the limited British forces in the Far East were not capable of thwarting a Japanese invasion, and that the Royal Navy was committed to containing the German and Italian fleets, so it would not be able to send a fleet to the Far East. Hong Kong, Malaya, Singapore, and the Dutch East Indies could not be reinforced if a war broke out with Japan. Well, what do you think the Germans did with all of these documents? They handed them over to the Japanese, of course. On top of all of this, the Japanese broke the British Army codes in January of 1941, learning further details of the weakened state of the Gibraltar of the East. Their war planners had a field day. Now, the American codebreakers had been reading the Japanese diplomatic traffic for quite a while and had built machines to help them with the process. Two of these machines were given to the British. On December the 2nd of 1941, Brooke Popham was shown an intercepted telegram to Tokyo from Japan's ambassador in Bangkok. It stated that the Thai government urged Japan to make its initial landings at Kota Baharu, this would provoke the British into invading southern Thailand to prevent further landings at Kra Ismas, and would give Thailand the chance to call for Japanese help to eject the western aggressors. On the same day, the order to climb Mount Nitaka was sent to the entire Japanese military. This code word was an order to the entire Japanese military that the war was on and set into motion the start of a great offensive everywhere. On December the 4th, Japanese transport ships crammed with men and equipment began to move. Aboard the amphibious landing vessel Ryojomaru were two very important figures, General Tomoyuki Yamashita and Colonel Masanobu Tsuji. The 5'2 Tsuji, small for his generation of Japanese males, had thin lips an unblinking gaze behind horn-rimmed spectacles. He was the son of a poor farmer, descended from generations of peasants. He was considered a dull dog by his fellow cadets because he neither drank nor womanized. 
He was also on the same staff army group in Manchuria that suffered at the hands of General Zhukov during the border clashes. And to learn more about those crazy battles, go check out Kings and Generals Battle of Kalkin Gaul, 1939, over on YouTube. It's an excellent episode. Tsuji was also the lead man planning the invasion of Malaya and Singapore. Before the embargoes and the move into Indochina, he had started the plans. It was quite an enormous ordeal. Japan had never fought in areas such as the tropics, for example. His team had to consider things like, how does a corps avoid malaria? Or how do they look after their rifles in humid conditions? What was it like to amphibiously assault a beach in Malaya? His war planners did mock tests on the Kyushu Islands, the furthest south of Japan's main islands, but the conditions were not precisely like those on Malaya. Hell, Tsuiji even followed his troops who waddled in the beach water asking if they felt seasick because of the transport. Did the coral reef make it dangerous? He really took everything he could into mind. Then there was Yamashita, the commander of the 25th Army Group, a formidable figure by all meanings of the word. Yamashita had already recently headed a Japanese military mission in Berlin, where the fine dining had expanded his already large girth, and that was something rare amongst Japanese generals. Tsuji described Yamashita as, quote, of dignified physique, end of quote. Indeed, Yamashita was five foot seven and quite heavy for a Japanese male of his time. Yamashita was also quite different from other generals. He spent a lot more time in Europe for one thing. He had served five years of military attaché service, first in Berny, then in Vienna, where he had an affair with a German woman, then in Berlin. He had personally witnessed the aftermath of the 1940 German Blitzkrieg in Europe, and he was very impressed by the potential of fast-moving warfare in which infantry, armor, and air support were coordinated. Yamashita was 56 years old, the son of a country doctor from Shikoku. For all intensive purposes, Yamashita was a military bureaucrat who had never been to an actual war. Thus, all of his formidable energy was spent trying to prove himself to his patrons that he was worthy. He worked intensely long hours and would frequently catnap in which he snored quite loudly. He was also part of the Kodaha faction and had some involvement in the February 26 coup. As a result, he had fallen out of favor. Because of this, Yamashita was sent to Korea to command a brigade and he would find himself stuck in the China War for quite a long time. Yamashita was famously devout to the emperor. Upon moving to any new office, he would first set out his compass in the direction of the imperial palace and then turn his desk to face it. Now Tsuji's plan for the invasion of Malaya was very bold. The Japanese would have to traverse over 400 miles of jungle road against a major force that had established the great defensive fortress of Singapore. Because the British-held Malaya was going to be the toughest nut to crack out of all of them, two out of four divisions assigned to Yamashita were arguably the best the IGA ever had.
The 5th and 18th Division were the backbone of battle-hardened veterans who had fought both the Russians and the Chinese. His 3rd Division was the aristocratic Lieutenant General Nishimura's Imperial Guards. Much like Britain's guardsmen, Nishimura's men were selected for their height and general physique. The guards had seen some action against Tsarist Russia about 40 years before. They had no real experience of war, and almost inevitably, they came to be regarded as chocolate box soldiers. That reference, by the way, was started by Germany during World War I, when they assumed the Belgians they would soon be facing were just a force that would barely fight back, aka chocolate soldiers. The idea is kind of like they would, you know, just melt away. Yamashita's 4th Division was the 56th. And in a more unusual way, for an unusual general, they were kept in Japan as a reserve. Some historians argue he left them because he thought they would prove to be a great strain on his logistics, as to have four divisions on his ration strength, all dependent on a long and vulnerable line of communication, would be very difficult. Yamashita would also enjoy something quite rare for the Japanese during the entire war, he would have superior armor. He had over 200 medium and light tanks, while the British would have none, unless you counted their infantry Bren gun carriers, which were kind of like small open-topped light armored track vehicles equipped with nothing heavier than an anti-tank rifle or a light machine gun. All of this was complemented by the 3rd Army Air Group and the 22nd Naval Air Flotilla, that could put up to about 600 aircraft into the air. Thus, this all made up Yamashita's famous 25th Army. And if you remember what I mentioned about Yamashita's time, seeing the effects of the German Blitzkrieg in Europe, well, a big reason such armor was found within the 25th Army is because he personally pushed for it. Yamashita was told he must take Singapore within 100 days so his formations could be used elsewhere. Not an easy task, by any means. On top of all of this, Yamashita was not going to war with friendly faces. He was on quite bad terms with the ambitious Nushimura and his field marshal, Count Turachi. Alongside this, Yamashita suspected Tsuji to be a spy for Hideki Tojo, who was currently finding all information he could to use against Yamashita, because there was a rivalry between the two, and the Prime Minister's office was soon up for grabs. So the 25th Army, like the other Japanese forces, were sent onto transports made into giant convoys set towards their designated targets. Now I previously mentioned a bit about all the code-breaking done by the Allies. The British knew some colluding was going on between Thailand and Japan. In August of 1941, Brooke Popham submitted a plan to London, codenamed Matador. The plan assumed the Japanese would land on the east coast of Siam, at Songkla and Patani. Then they would advance south to Jitra and Kho. It was envisioned that two forces could intercept them just over the border in Thailand, long enough for a main force to assemble and attack. Well, on December the 5th, the British reconnaissance began to see Japanese convoys of troop ships on the move, 
and after reading the chit-chat between Thailand and Japan, London gave Brooke Popham permission to launch Operation Matador, provided he had, quote, Good information that a Japanese expedition was advancing with intent to land at the Kra Isthmus. End of quote. Well, these were kind of awkward orders. What if the intercepted cable between Thailand and Japan was just a feint? This entire time, Britain was struggling to acquire Thailand's assurance to comply with them instead of Japan. What if the British took the hostile route and as a result, America would remain neutral and not come to their aid? On top of all of that, bad weather hampered Operation Matador and helped the Japanese. So on the night of December the 6th, Brooke Popham, Percival, and the governor, Sir Shenton Thomas, met to make a decision. They did not know the exact direction or amount of Japanese troop ships in the region, and thus decided to make a preemptive attack was premature. After all, the Japanese troop ships moving around could simply be a demonstration against Thailand, Percival stated the moment had been lost regardless. The whole point of Matador was to have advanced into Thailand in advance and dig in. If the Japanese were already en route, well, they had no time to perform the operation. Thailand's dictator, Marshal Plak Phibun, an interesting figure to say the least, he was part of the Royal Siamese Army and a member of the Kana Lastadon. A military political party. Well, he was the leader of the Siamese Revolution of 1932, transforming Thailand from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. Then he managed to become the third prime minister of Thailand by 1938 and simultaneously the commander of the Royal Siamese Army. So, as you can imagine, he formed a de facto military dictatorship which was pretty much inspired by Benito Mussolini's regime. Say what you want about Mussolini, but he was sure popular back in the day. Now, Fibun was in a difficult situation. He was playing both the Western powers and the Japanese to see which side would be more advantageous to his nation. But the invasion of his nation was almost certainly going to occur regardless of which side he chose. So he promised the Japanese safe passage through his country so they could invade Malaya. But at the same time, he desperately tried to get the British and Americans to guarantee their support if Thailand was invaded by Japan. Well, neither the Americans nor the British could guarantee any effective support. The Japanese managed to break some codes and overheard some of this, and they were uncertain if they would actually have safe passage through Thailand or not. In the end, Fibun saw the paint on the wall. He agreed to the safe passage through Thailand, provided Thailand could regain some territories it had ceded during the Anglo-Siamese Treaty of 1909, as well as some of Burma's Shan states. On December the 4th of 1941, Sir Winston Churchill sent word to Phi Bun, stating, quote, There is a possibility of imminent Japanese invasion of your country. If you are attacked, defend yourselves. 
the preservation of the true independence and sovereignty of Thailand is a British interest, and we shall regard an attack on you as an attack upon ourselves. End of quote. Well, on December the 7th, at 11 p.m., the Japanese presented Thailand an ultimatum. Let the Japanese military save passage, or else. They gave him about two hours to respond. The Thai government did not give a response. The 25th Army was escorted by the 2nd Fleet, commanded by Admiral Kondo Nubutake, en route to Thailand and Malaya. The landings in Thailand were critical because the British could not defend the area, allowing for an easy beachhead. And it was not just Yamashita's 25th Army taking part. The 15th Army of Lieutenant General Eida Yoshijira was going to march through Thailand to reach their target, Burma. His forces were stationed in Indochina, ready to swarm the Thai border if no response was met. Near Hong Kong, the 23rd Army of Lieutenant General Sakai Takashi was getting ready to make a three-pronged attack on the Gin Drinkers Line, while the island of Hong Kong would be naval blockaded and bombarded into submission. Now, Thailand had a decently trained military of 26,000 men, with another 25,000 men or so in reserves. Their air force had 270 aircraft. Their navy was on the weaker side, having recently lost warships during conflicts with French Indochina. At dawn of December the 8th, half an hour before the attack on Pearl Harbor, remember, there is a time zone difference, the Imperial Guards Division of Lieutenant General Takume Nushimura and the 55th Division of Lieutenant General Hiroshi Takaichi crossed the border of Indochina and Thailand. The place where they crossed was Thailand's recently claimed Phra Taobong province. The Japanese found no resistance there. Simultaneously, Japanese troop ships began to land all over Thailand's southern coast. Two troop ships landed at Chumphon, carrying the 143rd Infantry Regiment, part of the 55th Division. They managed to form a perimeter around their beachhead when they were attacked and pinned down by some very determined Thai Yua Chan Tahan. These were youth soldier cadets of the 52nd Yua Chan Tahan training units from a secondary school. Backing them up was the Thai 38th Infantry Battalion and the Provincial Police Force of Chunfan. These brave Thai defenders would manage to pin the Japanese down for quite a few hours. The Prime Minister and Commanding Field Marshal, Phi Bun, said of the beginning of hostilities, quote, Fight to the last drop of blood. End of quote. And as his troops marched to their inevitable death, he met secretly with the rest of his cabinet to figure out how to surrender. At Nakhon Si Thamarat, three Japanese transport ships, the Mike, Toho Maru, and Zenyo, landed 1,500 men with over 50 trucks, and they were immediately met by the Thai 39th Infantry Battalion. These forces would all fight until midday. Landings were also made at Samut Prakan and Surat Thani, where the Japanese faced minor resistance. Members of the 25th Army would also see some action, 
such as the 42nd Infantry Regiment of the 5th Division, led by Major Shigiharu Aseeda, who would have to land in a place called Patani. Patani was the second most important objective because it was close to the Malayan border. Five troop ships landed there. Major Aseeda had personally chosen the beach for the landing because of its white sand and firm footing. And as the landing forces churned through the chest-high water with full equipment on, well, something happened. Here is a quote from the book The Rising Sun by John Tolland. It is as follows. To his horror, Asaida found himself sinking in mud, and the beautiful white sand did not extend into the water at low tide. Some of his men, carrying machine guns, were dragged down and drowned. It took the others almost three harrowing hours to slow the 300 yards to solid ground, where they were raked by Thai fire. End of quote. That gunfire was coming from the Thai 42nd Infantry, the Patani Provincial Police, and a Thai Yuachan Tahan Unit, the 66. The Thai commander was killed alongside 23 soldiers, five provincial police, and four youth members, and nine civilians as they tried to resist. At Singora, Another main objective of Yamashita's 25th Army, three regiments of the 5th Division, led by Colonel Tsuji himself and under Lieutenant General Matsue Takoro, they landed 10 troop ships. Tsuji had devised a rather sneaky plan. He had sent a major named Osone to pose as a clerk at the Singora Consulate and to work to persuade the Thai Army and the police not to interfere with the landing operations. When they landed, Major Osane was nowhere to be seen, however. So Tsuji rushed into the town to find Major Osane asleep at the consulate. The man told him he never received the mission message. A very exasperated Tsuji then ordered the consul to drive him to the police station where he thought he could bribe them by using 100,000 takals of Thai money. Just as the driver pulled near the station, a bullet smashed into the car's headlight and Suji screamed to his interpreter, quote, Don't shoot! This is the Japanese army! Join us and attack the British army! End of quote. They were then met with a volley of shots and the Japanese began to return fire. Tsuji's forces pushed aside most of the resistance as they made their way closer to the Malayan border. Airbases were being overwhelmed quickly by the Japanese, such as the Danmang Royal Thai Air Force Base, which lost six fighters to the superior Japanese forces. Bangkok was bombed with a single bomb, sort of a symbolic gesture, that did not explode but hit a post office. In just 12 hours, Hundreds of Thai and Japanese soldiers were dead on the beaches. As more landings unfolded and more areas were occupied by the Japanese, well, the Prime Minister Fibun ordered a ceasefire to the resistance, and after several hours of fighting, Thailand acceded to Japan's demands for passage through the country. Thai sovereignty and independence would be safeguarded, 
but Thailand had now allied herself to the Empire of Japan. Fibun went on to assure his nation that Japan's actions were pre-arranged with a sympathetic Thai government helping them. Almost an hour before the attack on Pearl Harbor began, three transports, the Awagizan Maru, Ayotosan Maru, and Sakura Maru, landed three kilometers off the coast of Kotabaru, right at the northeastern tip of Malaya. It was midnight, and to the luck of the Japanese, it was very cloudy, covering the moon. The ships carried 5,200 troops of the Takumi Detachment, commanded by Major General Hiroshi Takumi. The majority of these men were battle-hardened veterans who served for months in harsh jungle-like terrain in China. They were escorted by the cruiser Sendai and a handful of destroyers. As the small landing crafts made their way to the beach at 1.15 a.m., the escorting warships began to bombard the coast. When the transports reached the beaches, they were suddenly met with artillery fire, landmines, barbed wire, and machine gun fire from pillboxes. The 8th Indian Infantry Brigade, 3rd Battalion of the 17th Dogger Regiment, and many artillery regiments met the Japanese invaders with ferocity. Searchlights began to open up on all the transport crafts, and a hailstorm of bullets rained down upon them. Colonel Tsuji said of this moment in his book about the Malayan campaign, quote, The enemy pillboxes, which were well prepared, reacted violently with such heavy force that our men lying on the beach, half in and half out of water, could not raise their heads. End of quote. The first and second wave of Japanese were pinned down and had to resort to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat to take the first pillboxes. Once they managed to breach the first few pillboxes, it became easier to overwhelm the Indian defenders within their trenches. Having been alerted of the Japanese invasion, the senior Air Force officers at Kotobaru launched off in Hudson's to bomb them. Seven Hudson's attacked the transport ships, they hit the Awagizan Maru, sinking her, and making her the first Japanese ship to be sunk during the war. The Allied bombers made seven sorties under Japanese anti-aircraft fire, and two Hudsons were shot down. One crippled aircraft flown by Flight Lieutenant Leighton Jones was reported to have crashed into a fully laden landing craft. Many transports were lit on fire by the attacks, and Colonel Tsuiji stated of this, quote, Before long, enemy planes in formations of two and three began to attack our transports, which soon became enveloped in flame and smoke. End of quote. Then the Kantan airfield received a signal of the Japanese invasion at Kotobaru, and they sent 12 Hudsons to bomb them as well. On the northern bank, where it was more open, these Hudsons began to attack the trapped Japanese soldiers and the transport ships there. Once a few pillboxes and several trenches were taken, the Japanese were able to push the defenders more inland. The Japanese lost something like 300 to a possible 500 men 
to the carnage that was the beach gunfire and the Hudson bombers. As the Japanese troops pushed towards the Kotubaro airfield, the Japanese air forces that were covering the march through Thailand began to arrive. At 10.30 a.m., the Japanese reached Kotubaru despite the British Indian troops fighting back. And as the Allied forces pulled back, they lost around 68 killed with up to 400 wounded. The airfield at Kotubaru was evacuated by dusk. Colonel Tsuiji said of Kotubaru, quote, It was one of the most violent actions of the Malayan campaign. End of quote. 600 miles across the Gulf of Thailand, 34 Mitsubishi twin-engined Nell bombers took off from the Thus Da Moi airfield in Saigon. They took a 1,400-mile round trip with full bomb loads. The weather was so bad, only 17 would make the entire journey to hit the RAF airbases of Tenga, Selatar, and Semba Wang Naval Base at Keppel Harbor. The radar station at Mersing picked them up and Brewster Buffaloes were prepared to make a sortie against them when Brooke Popham ordered them not to launch. It seems he feared that his own anti-aircraft batteries would hit the fighters. At 4 a.m., despite air raid sirens going off, all the streetlights in Singapore were still on. The police and power station officials could not find the custodians who had the keys to the master switch. The lights of the city guided the Japanese pilots to their targets. There was no blackout. In fact, the air raid precautions HQ was not even manned. At 4.30 a.m., the Nels began bombing and the anti-aircraft guns began to fire back. The battleship Prince of Wales and the battle cruiser Repulse also fired their anti-aircraft guns. The experienced Japanese bombers sent out nine of the aircraft 12,000 feet to draw the anti-aircraft fire hopelessly at them as the other bombers snuck in at around 4,000 feet to hit targets. They managed to hit the airfields of Selatar and Tenga, doing some minor damage. Then, a number of bombs hit the Raffles Place in the financial district of Singapore, killing 61 people and injuring up to 700 more. The British intelligence had suggested the Japanese Air Force was not capable of hitting Singapore over 600 miles away. Even Arthur Percival, who had studied the war in China quite closely, said, I hardly expected the Japanese to have any very long-range aircraft. End of quote. Well, these long-range aircraft began to raid the northern part of Malaya to help Japanese forces acquire beachheads and cross the border from Thailand. Brook Popham's airfields were being neutralized. The Japanese air superiority became apparent very quick. In the ensuing confusion, two counterattacks on Kotubaru were repelled, prompting the British to prematurely destroy their own airfields at Kotubaru, Singai Patani, Alor Setar, Gong Kedai, and Machang, basically neutralizing themselves. 
Further west, in the town of Crow, an Indian force had been earmarked to execute a mini-version of Operation Matador, codenamed Crocal, with the objective of occupying a easily defendable ledge position on the Patani Road. Within the chaos, the operation launched at 3 p.m., and the Indian force ran right into the Thai police resistance in the town of Betong. The Thai police, led by Major Prayun Ratanakit, had established roadblocks to delay the Allied advance for two entire days, while simultaneously fighting the Japanese invasion at Patani. Thus, this began a race between the Indian force and the Japanese to reach the ledge position, which was 60 miles from Patani. Brooke Popham issued an order of the day, stating, quote, We are ready. We have plenty of warning, and our preparations are made and tested. We are confident. Our defenses are strong, and our weapons efficient. What of the enemy? We see before us Japan, drained for years by the exhausting claims of her wanton onslaught on China. Confidence, resolution, enterprise, and devotion to the cause must and will inspire every one of us in the fighting services, while from the civilian population, Malay, Chinese, Indian, or Burmese, we expect that patience, endurance, and serenity, which is the great virtue of the East, and which will go far to assist the fighting men to gain final and complete victory. End of quote. While the chaos raged in Malaya, over in Hong Kong, three columns of the 38th Division began to attack the new territories of Hong Kong, overrunning the defenders, and by late afternoon, they had reached the Gin Drinkers Line. Hong Kong had been heavily bombed by Japanese aircraft, which took out K-Tak Airport. The IGN began a naval bombardment as well and blockaded Hong Kong Island. Only two British destroyers, Thanet and Scout, managed to escape the naval blockade and swiftly sailed to Singapore to join Force Z. The only problem for these two destroyers was unbeknownst to them, Admiral Phillips had just sailed out of Singapore after dusk with Fort C, intending to take the fight to the enemy at Kotubaru. Admiral Phillips, nicknamed Tom Thumb, due to his short stature, was appointed commander-in-chief of the China Station in late 1941, despite many in the Royal Navy's echelon considering him to be a desk admiral. He was tasked with Force G originally, consisting of the flagship Prince of Wales and accompanied by the Repulse and a handful of destroyers. They were to go to Singapore to dissuade the Japanese from ever attacking. When Japan began its invasion of Malaya and Singapore, the force was redesignated as Force Z. The Japanese were aware of the naval force in Singapore and targeted all the airfields around Malaya, hoping to knock out Force Z's air support. Before Phillips sailed out in the afternoon, he asked Air Vice Marshal C.W. Pulford, 
what air cover he could expect for his sortie. Pulford promised to give Phillips air reconnaissance the very next day, December the 9th. Though he knew at this point the northern Malayan airfields were all but knocked out. And thus it would turn out he could only spare a few planes by December the 10th. Now, the Japanese were unable to hit the Prince of Wales and the Repulse in the shallow docks of Singapore Harbour because it held such an enormous amount of anti-aircraft guns. When Phillips decided to make this sortie, the two big ships were finally vulnerable and the Japanese lured them into a trap. Phillips hoped to arrive at Kotobaru by December the 10th and was relying on the surprise factor for his operation to attack the Japanese convoys there. While he was sailing, fighting at Kotobaru continued as the disorganized defenders tried to reclaim the area. By December the 10th, the defenders were ordered to abandon Kotobaru and retreat south of Machang. As Phillips Force Z went past the Shangi signal station, they received a radiogram from Pulford stating, Regret, fighter protection, impossible. To this, Phillips said, Well, we must get on with it. End of quote. Phillips believed the Japanese planes could not operate so far from land. He also believed his ships were relatively immune from fatal attacks by aircraft because he did not seem to know the quality of Japanese torpedoes. Like most of the Royal Navy officers of his day, Phillips underestimated the fighting abilities of Japanese pilots. Force Z was sighted by the IGN submarine I-56 at 1.45 p.m. on December the 9th, and it relayed the message that two enemy men of war and four destroyers were heading north at 14 knots near Pro Condor Island in Saigon. Rear Admiral Sayadachi Matsununaga of the Japanese 22nd Air Flotilla could not believe it. They had found two large British battleships out in the open and they were sitting ducks. He immediately ordered aircraft that were equipped with bombs to hit targets in Singapore to rearm for torpedoes. They were going to go on a hunt. Around four hours later, Force Z saw three Japanese reconnaissance planes. The jig was up, Phillips thought, so they made the decision to pull back to Singapore. But just then, Phillips received a message from his chief of staff in Singapore stating, Enemy reported landings at Kuantan. End of quote. Kuantan was on the east coast of Malaya, midway between Singapore and Kotubaru, Phillips decided to go for it. Almost an hour after midnight, Force Z changed course for Kuantan. At 2.10 a.m. on December the 10th, the I-58 submarine sighted Force Z again and shot six torpedoes at Repulse, missing with each, and the British had not even noticed the attack. Then, as Force Z drew closer to Kuantan, Phillips sent a message 
requesting air cover over Kwantan from Semba Wang's Buffalo fighters. The RAF would only manage to dispatch an hour after Fort C would be attacked. On the 26,500 ton repulse, CBS correspondent Cecil Brown was taking pictures of gun crews playing cards. Then at 11.07 a.m., he heard on the loudspeaker, Enemy aircraft approaching. Action stations. 88 Japanese aircraft were inbound. 34 torpedo bombers, 51 level bombers, and 3 scouts. Two squadrons of Nell bombers from Genzan Air Corps began to drop 1,100-pound armor-piercing bombs. They mistook a destroyer to be a battleship and ended up missing with all of their bombs. Lieutenant Takai, leading another squadron, thought to himself, quote, Where were the enemy fighters? End of quote. Lieutenant Takai then saw a large battleship that looked just like the IGN Congo. His blood ran cold, and he said into the voice tube, It looks just like the Congo. And an answer came back, saying, It looks like our Congo to me too. End of quote. Takai went down 1,500 feet before he was certain it was not the Congo. At 11.30, 17 Nels approached and split into two attack squadrons. Nine Nels leveled out and proceeded on their attack runs towards the Prince of Wales. The Prince of Wales opened up all of its anti-aircraft batteries, but the tropical weather made its surface radar inoperable, so crews were firing by eyesight only. The planes sped through her 5-inch guns, closing the distance, the inexperience of the crews began to show as they could not seem to accurately adjust their guns on the attacking planes. The planes then got into torpedo range and dropped their payloads. Only one plane was shot down. One single torpedo raced through the water and struck near the outer propeller shaft of Prince of Wales. Her auxiliary power to the pumping system collapsed and she began to list 11.5 degrees to port. Over on the repulse, Captain William Tennant saw the not-under-control balls hoisted above the Prince of Wales, and she began to lower her speed to 15 knots. He then asked the flagship what damage she had suffered, but got no answer. Repulse managed to avoid over 19 torpedoes. Cecil Brown heard one man scream, quote, Look at these yellow bastards come. And just as he said that, torpedoes slapped into the sea all around the repulse, and another man screamed out, Plucky blokes, these Japs! That was a beautiful attack as I ever expect to see. William Tennant signaled again to Admiral Phillips, quote, We have dodged 19 torpedoes thus far, thanks to Providence. End of quote. But again, there was no response. Tennant repeatedly signaled Phillips, but there was just no answers. He then reduced Repulse speed to 20 knots and moved closer to the flagship to try and offer some assistance. 
and it was just then 26 G4M Betty torpedo bombers began to drop their payloads, scoring three hits right into the Prince of Wales and a single hit into the Repulse. Prince of Wales lost half of her power. Her second propeller and a single bomb had hit her amidship where the wounded were located. The Prince of Wales then began to roll over as the Repulse was listing to port. Then Lieutenant Iki dropped a torpedo 800 feet from the Repulse, hitting her broadside at the bow of the battlecruiser. Two rapid explosions were seen. As Iki climbed higher, he saw another torpedo drive home as the Repulse veered crazily. The torpedo smashed into her starboard, with another two into her port. The Japanese had created an anvil spread of the torpedoes. As the Repulse started sinking, Captain William Tennant gave the abandoned ship order. Prepare to abandon ship. God be with you. The Repulse began to list 70 degrees when Tennant said to his staff, Well, gentlemen, you had better get out of it now. He said this as he stood rooted to the bridge. Several of his officers grabbed him as he fought them off, trying not to get off the ship. By 1233, Repulse rolled over, and flying 5,000 feet, Iki looked down to see the incredulous scene, thinking to himself, Planes couldn't sink a battleship so easily. Then he shouted, Banzai! Banzai! to his comrades. Iki could also see hundreds of dots in the water. Two destroyers were picking up the survivors. It never occurred to Iki to strafe them. The British had fought gallantly, in the tradition of Bushido. He had yet to learn a lesson most Japanese would be taught during this war. An enemy spared today may kill you tomorrow. Mortally wounded by five torpedo hits, Prince of Wales was careened by high-level bombers at 1244. One bomb struck home as Captain Leach ordered all hands to abandon ship. Captain Leach and Admiral Phillips stood together on the bridge and waved to the departing men, calling out, Goodbye, thank you, good luck, and God bless you. At 1.19, the battleship, nicknamed HMS Unsinkable, kneeled heavily over to port and within a minute sank, taking Admiral Phillips and Captain Leach. And just at that moment, 10 Brewster Buffaloes arrived to see Prince of Wales sink. 513 men died aboard Repulse, and 327 men aboard Prince of Wales. The rest of her crews were rescued by their destroyers and got back to Singapore. The Japanese lost four aircraft. The next morning, Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill received a phone call at his bedside from Sir Dudley Pound, the first sea lord. Here is how Churchill recounted it. Pound. Prime Minister, I have to report to you that the Prince of Wales and the Repulse 
have both been sunk by the Japanese. We think by aircraft. Tom Phillips is drowned. Churchill? Are you sure it's true? Pound? There is no doubt at all. Churchill hangs up the phone. In all the war, I have never received a more direct shock. As I turned over and twisted in bed, the full horror of the news sank in upon me. There were no British or American ships in the Indian Ocean or the Pacific except the American survivors of Pearl Harbor, who were hastening back to California. Across this vast expanse of waters, Japan was supreme, and we were everywhere, weak and naked. End of quote. Meanwhile, back in Hong Kong, the Japanese commenced their attack against the Gin Drinkers Line on December the 9th. By midday, the 52,000-man-strong 38th Division, led by General Takashi Sakai, had found a weak spot on the British line at the Shin Moon Redoubt. In just five hours, the infantry unit led by Colonel Tahaichi managed to breach the Shin Moon Redoubt, forcing the Royal Scots who were there defending it to withdraw. By 10 p.m., they occupied the breach and the entire line was exposed. The defenders along the Gin Drinkers Line were forced to withdraw to Hong Kong Island by simultaneously defending the IGN invasion of Lama Island by using their artillery. By December the 13th, the last of these Allied forces managed to escape to Hong Kong Island, where the defenders would establish new defensive lines within the island. At this point, the Japanese sent a delegation to offer the terms of surrender, but the Allies refused. They were then met with a continuous artillery bombardment of Hong Kong Island by 9.2-inch guns set up on the local Mount Davis. The plight of Hong Kong will be talked more about in following episodes. Back in Malaya, the Krokal Detachment, which ran its race against the Japanese to take that defensive ledge, well, they ran right into a Japanese ambush, only a mile away from the ledge. It had turned out the Japanese had won the race after all, and they had arrived midday on December the 10th. The Indian detachment suffered heavy casualties and were repelled back to Craw by December the 13th. The Japanese had also advanced southwards from their beachhead in Singora to the Malay border. They now faced Jitra, which was being defended by Major General David Murray of the 11th Indian Division. Murray was a bagpipe-playing Scot who, unfortunately for his division, was on the northern border of Malaya and Thailand when the invasion had commenced. His main orders were to defend the Alor Sitar airfield. Little did he know, the airfield had already been abandoned. Murray had no tanks, barely any air support, and by this point his men looked good on paper but in many ways, they were just newly raised and half-trained Indian Army battalions. Murray sent two detachments to delay the Japanese advance on December the 9th, but did little to hinder them. 
Murray followed this up by placing two battalions north of Jitra so his men would have some time to prepare some defenses. This force would come into contact with the Japanese tanks on the morning of December the 11th, and they were almost obliterated and quickly overrun. The loss of these battalions forced Murray to bring forward his reserves, leaving Alor Sitar lightly defended. Murray's forces were already pretty demoralized at this point, and by 6 a.m., the Japanese had penetrated their defensive lines. The Japanese were using tanks, aircraft, and infantry attacks in waves, constantly outflanking Murray's forces. They even had reconnaissance motorcyclists who were driving through Murray's retreating columns. Apparently, on one occasion, Murray himself quickly drew his revolver and shot a Japanese soldier right off a motorcycle. This led Murray to begin to frantically ask permission to withdraw, and at 7.30, Arthur Percival approved his request. One Lieutenant Peter Greer, the commander of an anti-tank battery, had this to say of the chaos. Quote, Suddenly, I saw some of my trucks and a carrier screaming down the flooded road and I heard the hell of a battle. The din was terrific. Almost immediately, a medium tank roared past me. I dived for cover. Within the next two minutes, a dozen medium tanks and a couple of two man tanks passed right over me. They had crashed right through our forward companies. In the middle of the tanks, I saw one of my carriers, its tail was on fire, and the number two was facing back firing his light machine gun at a tank just 20 yards behind him. Poor beggar. End of quote. The Indian troops began to retreat to a defensive position at Gurun, but everything went into chaos. Murray's forces suffered immense casualties, and basically the 11th Indian Division had been all but obliterated. By this point, Northern Malaya was completely overrun by the Japanese, who continued their advance down the peninsula. The Allies were in for some more horror to come. I would like to take this time to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue helping us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And after all that, if you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. So next time, we will continue to cover the Japanese onslaught of this week, which, might I add, is particularly dense. If you thought those Brits in Malaya were getting it rough, just you wait to hear about how the excitement will hit the Americans and Filipinos as we're going to look at the Philippines and how they were invaded. Join us next time for the invasion of the Philippines. <laughs>